welcome, and it is an eclectic episode 59 of Mosin at Large. We'll be talking about things in the kitchen, upgrading your hard drive to solid state. An opponent of my Apple petition has had a change of heart. Can you advocate and be grateful at the same time? And of course, plenty of technology memories. Mosin at Large Podcast. You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J O N A T H A N at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736 and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast, and I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. Now, on the live version of Mosin at Large on Mushroom FM, we aired our 47-minute interview with Larry Scootcon from APH, talking about the Mantis, Studio Recorder, Nearby Explorer, and a lot of other things. I made the observation on the show, on the live show, that Charlie's Chocolate Factory and APH have a lot in common, I think, because both in their respective fields are cooking up amazing goodies, you know what I mean? Anyway, that 47-minute interview is worth hearing in its entirety, and if we put it in this episode, because we have so many awesome listener contributions, it would get a bit long. So we're going to publish episode 60 of the podcast on Wednesday of this week, US time, Thursday here in New Zealand, and that will be the interview with Larry Scootcon. So that means that you can enjoy a lot of the listener contributions today from the show and not miss out on Larry. It's great to have you with us once again. Thank you so much for being a part of it. It's a really busy show, so I won't talk too long by way of introduction, except that I do have to tell you that I did a really dumb thing this week. And here is my excuse. Masks are going to be compulsory here in New Zealand. The debate about science here is over. They've done a 180. They've said, yes, you've got to wear a mask on public transport. It is now compulsory. And that includes Uber and taxis. So I thought I would get ahead of the curve because I've got these masks that my daughter Nicola, my youngest daughter Nicola, made for me and Bonnie, and anyone else who will buy them. Quite entrepreneurial she is. So after the announcement was made about this, I decided I would wear masks going in Ubers, etc. Henceforth, 
So I headed out on Tuesday morning in my Uber, and I thought to myself, myself, I thought, I think I now understand what all the very learned Mosin at Large podcast listeners are going on about when they talk about facial vision, because I really kind of felt disorientated. It was a very strange feeling, not to mention the usual things that come with wearing a mask. You know, you kind of, (laughs) no one can understand you and all that kind of thing. I'm in the back of the Uber doing some work, and I carry this big backpack with me. It's a leather backpack. It's black. It looks quite nice. When I became a chief executive last year, my first wife, my kid's mum, bought me this really nice briefcase, and it's even got JWM, my initials, monogrammed in Braille on the lid. Whoa, looks really stylish. The trouble is it's not very practical, beautiful though it is, because if I've got a white cane in one hand and a briefcase in the other, it's hard to kind of stretch out and feel for landmarks or even do practical things like open doors. So I reverted to this backpack that I've been carrying around for years, and it's a treasure trove, a cornucopia of goodies. It's got my laptop and my braille display, many different cables and adapters and things. And of course, when I used to travel a lot, it was always fun going through security because I'd always get my laptop out and tablet and braille display and anything else I might be carrying. But then they'd go, oh, look at all these cables. And sometimes they'd empty it out and sometimes they wouldn't put them back. And that was a real hassle trying to assemble it all again. So this backpack is legendary. And I was working away on my way to work, and I put the backpack on my right-hand side, and I was feeling so kind of weird in this mask, just getting used to it really for the first time, that when we got to my office, I said, thanks very much, leapt out, went up to the office, I climbed four flights of stairs, well actually eight flights, because there were two flights per floor, yep, that's me, athletic on the ketogenic diet, rocking it, and then washed my hands because I do that as soon as I get anywhere now with the COVID. Went in, had a chat to my executive assistant, had a wee chin wag, a catch up. Went into my office and I thought, okay, now it's time to get on with my work. Reached out for my backpack and I thought, oh my word, Dude. I have left the backpack in the Uber. Oh. I'm thinking, what kind of pillock? What kind of pillock? Would do this. Absolutely right. And then I'm thinking I've got to get this back. So luckily I'm a member of the Uber Diamond Support thing because of how many Ubers I've been taking. And to be fair, we do like our Uber Eats. So I called the number and they were very good, actually. You can also do this through the app, of course. If you're not an Uber Diamond customer, you can go in and report that you've left something in there. But anyway, I called them up and they said they were going to phone the driver right away. Yes. So they called the driver and the driver didn't answer because he was on another job, apparently. So they said they would message the driver. So all this was at about 8.15 in the morning when I got to my office. And luckily, I have to say, you will remember, we've been talking on this show about doing more with your phone. So I did have a Bluetooth keyboard, which I keep at my office, and I had my iPhone, and I was able to do quite a bit of writing with Ulysses and email. But you see, it's just the knowledge that all this gear is out in the wild somewhere. Stressful, man. And I had a couple of meetings 
and emerged from them at 9.55. And I said to the people in the meetings, I'm leaving my phone on in case the driver calls me because I'm the pillock who left their stuff in the Uber. But nobody called me. So then I called the Uber Diamond people back. They managed to reach the driver. They got permission for me to have the driver's cell phone number. And we connected. And he said, oh, yeah, I've got it here. I'll bring it back sometime. And I'm like, dude, 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 dude. I need this. I can't live without it. I'll pay anything, anything. And he said, as soon as he was in the area, he would bring it over. So finally, bearing in mind that I did this ridiculous thing at 8.15 in the morning or a little before, I finally got my backpack complete with technology and all that stuff at 11.55, right in the middle of my senior leadership meeting that I was chairing. I got the call and rushed out. And I would not be surprised if those who watched me rush out were quite impressed by how speedily I whooshed down to get this backpack. I will never do that again. Have you done anything that stupid? Probably not. No one's done anything that stupid. Mosin at Large Podcast. Hi, Jonathan. It's Tanya Harrison here. Um, I've got a bit of a question because you've been, um, you know, the listeners have been talking for weeks about note takers versus the iPhone and I got a subscription weeks ago to Ulysses and I'm just starting to learn how to use it now. My Braille note taker is dying, absolutely dying and not something I can really afford to get replaced. So I'm wondering with Ulysses if you can import documents. So on my note taker, I've probably got about 100 or 200 files that I want to import. Is that the right kind of app you can do that with or is there some other app that I could try? And yeah, I just wanted to thank you, by the way, for recommending Ulysses because it does look like it's going to be good. I've um, also started a a writing project and it definitely looks good. So because I no longer have much use of my note taker because it's nearly dead, I've also ordered myself a Bluetooth keyboard. So I'm looking forward to using that with Ulysses as well. Welcome to the Ulysses adventure, Tanya. Yes, when you go to the name of a group, the the group header name in the list of groups, you should be able to go to the more option and there is an import option there, which will import files into the group in question. And it will take Word documents and a range of other formats. I think there is a pretty good explanation in the guide about the different formats that you can import. So once you have the files in a format that Ulysses can read, then you should be good to go for importing those files. You might like to have a really good group structure in place so it's easy to get to the files that you want. But absolutely, it is possible to import those files. Hello, Nicholas Goldsbury, who says, Dear Jonathan, hope you and family are doing well, given the present circumstances. I always look forward to listening to Mosin at Large on a weekly basis, in particular for its technology tidbits. Before this show, I listened to Main Menu and Blindline and credit you as one of my heroes for learning about computers in the first place. Thank you for being an inspiration for me and countless others. That is incredibly generous. Thank you, Nicholas. I wonder if a future episode of the podcast could be devoted to PC backup strategies. Many are aware of how to backup individual files and folders, 
but do not seem as comfortable with imaging. As a result, I would like to suggest people's favorite imaging software for backing up entire operating systems and settings. I have used Image for Windows from Terabyte, that's T-E-R-A-B-Y-T-E, Unlimited, Terabyte Unlimited, for the past two years, and it has not failed me once. It is fully accessible with any screen reader and has saved me hours of configuration. Thank you, Nicholas. What I tend to do if I'm migrating software from one computer to another, obviously all my documents, all the audio I work with, all that kind of stuff is stored in the cloud, and I have a lot of data stored on my Synology drive, and I will back up the application data folder so that when I install software from scratch, if I want to copy all my settings across, that often does the job. Of course, with things like Microsoft Office, you've really got to just install from scratch and then you can use your documents from the cloud. Now, imaging is a really good idea if you want to back up a machine and restore to that same machine. For that, I actually use the Windows 7 backup tool that I think is still there. So with the Mushroom FM PC, for example, every so often I will take a backup, an image backup, onto a portable USB drive. I'll just plug it in and do the backup with that old Windows 7 backup tool that's still buried away in Windows 7, and I've got a complete image there. Dropbox has actually just introduced a way to back up your PC, and I haven't explored that yet. You have to have one of the paid plans for that to be available, and if anybody's tried that and found success with it, I would be interested to know. So I guess I have two questions. First, what other recommendations do people have for doing a full image backup of their machine that's accessible. But second, if you've done that, I presume that you cannot take that image and plonk it on another machine. Is that correct? Because you'd have so many drivers specific to the hardware of that original machine that you backed up from. I'm assuming that you can't just dump that image on a new machine with different drivers and expect anything other than chaos. But obviously, if you're trying to avoid a hard disk crash, or maybe you're swapping out to a bigger hard drive on your PC, then these image backups would be great. So let's open it up and talk backup strategies. It is so much easier to backup now, and it's been a long, long time, knocking on the wood again, that I have actually lost anything important. Because with cloud services, with network-attached storage drives and everything. It is so easy to back up. But certainly in my earlier times, when it used to be necessary to back things up onto CD after CD, data CD, and then restore from those CDs, I would procrastinate a bit. And I did lose some stuff in the early days that I wish I hadn't lost. These days, it's been a very long time. So thank you. It's a great subject, Nicholas. We'll see what people have to say about backup strategies. More from Zach, who wrote in last week about the Apple petition, and he says, Hi, Jonathan, I'm just following up from my last email. After rereading the petition, I am realizing now that you were talking specifically about public beaters. I did misinterpret the petition, and I apologize profusely for my error. I do agree with you that Apple should not put out a public beta build that disabled voiceover, especially when they knew from the developer beta that voiceover would not function. My main concern was that we were getting all upset about a developer beta. 
which most blind people would not use. The developer beta is mainly what I was referring to in my last email, and I should have been more clear about that. I will absolutely sign the petition, as I agree that if Apple knew this feature was not going to function, it was irresponsible for them to put out a beta into the public where anyone who wanted could download it, maybe not knowing that voiceover was disabled. Again, I apologize. Regarding my previous comment about a week maybe not being enough time to fix this bug, it's important to remember that unlike most screen readers, VO is deeply integrated into the operating system. This means that if there is something else in the OS that breaks, voiceover could potentially be rendered unusable, and it may take longer for Apple to find the problem and fix it. Remember as well that there is only one accessibility team at Apple, who, as far as I know, is responsible for voiceover and all the other accessibility features on every platform Apple develops. I can't imagine that this job is an easy one, especially when most Apple employees are working from home at the moment. With all that being said, I am not giving Apple a free pass. I think it was a responsible behavior on their part, especially when you are not able to go back to a previous watchOS version to fix this problem. This is exacerbated by the fact that since we are currently in a pandemic, some people who may need to go to the Apple store to get the watch restored don't have that option. I don't think it would have been very hard for them to wait another week until the next developer beta that fixed this issue was released and simply release the public beta then. I don't know why they felt the need to rush this out. I would encourage you to get into contact with some Apple publications, such as Mac Rumors or 9to5Mac, to ask if they could highlight this issue. This will definitely help to push the petition a lot further. Here is a fun fact for you that most people probably aren't aware of. This kind of behavior is not new. A few years ago, Apple had a similar bug with macOS. In one of the beta builds, voiceover was not available when starting from the recovery partition. In case you don't know, the recovery partition is a way to reinstall macOS in the event the OS is somehow corrupted. This made it so that if you needed to revert to an earlier version, the only way to do so was to download a copy of macOS from the App Store and put it on a USB drive or SD card using some terminal commands or a third-party application. This isn't a big deal for someone who is technically proficient. However, for a lot of people, using the terminal can be very scary, not something that you want to be doing on a regular basis. Of course, this issue was fixed. However, it does show that sometimes Apple doesn't think voiceover is as important as it should be. Thank you for the email, Zach. And I must say that it takes a lot of courage and integrity to write into a show like this and say, my previous email was incorrect and I've changed my mind. And I really respect you for that. So thank you for doing it and for understanding the issue and for signing the petition, which continues to gain signatures. One thing that you might not know is that there aren't Apple stores in some countries where Apple is quite prominent, New Zealand being one. New Zealand does not have a single Apple store. They do contract with a company called Service Plus. So sometimes you can get repairs done in that place. But on other occasions, you need to send 
the device to Apple in Australia. And of course, with uh, air freight being what it is at the moment, that can be a bit problematic. So yes, it is a very big deal. I wouldn't compare the Mac OS uh, issue, and I am familiar with that because until 2016, I was using a Mac. I wouldn't think it's quite similar because in this case, you've completely disabled the device. There's no workaround. There's absolutely nothing you can do if you got updated to that developer beta or you installed it without reading the release notes. And I would like to make a comment on these release notes. So I've been a lot more cautious since this watchOS debacle happened. And now when even an iOS beta comes out, I do my best to track down the release notes. But at least in the developer seed, it is not that easy. What I would expect to happen is that if you go into settings, general, and then software update, and it shows you that there's a new build available, I would expect to be able to double tap on the learn what's new button or whatever they call it and be put on a page straight away that has the release notes. Now, it may be different for public beta seed members, but for the developer builds, you get placed on this page where you have to sign in and drill down and find the release notes. It actually takes a lot of effort. So, okay, I get the whole RTFM thing, (laughs) read the fine manual (laughs) or the fine release notes in this case. But if you are required to do that, I think Apple, with its whole it just works mentality, needs to make them a lot more readily available than they do. Regarding contacting tech journalists, yes, I have contacted journalists from all those publications, and I did that when I launched the petition. I thought it was a bit of a long shot. But, you know, I have also contacted journalists in the past when we've had some really serious issues with release builds, like some blind people not even being able to answer phone calls and various things like that. They're just not. They will happily publish sycophantic pieces about accessibility. They will publish touchy-feely pieces about accessibility, you know, inspiration porn. But they will not come to terms with the idea that actually there are times when Apple drops the ball. They will not publish pieces like that. They don't want to touch the problems with Apple's accessibility quality control that have existed for some years with a barge pole. Thanks for the email, Zach. I really appreciate that. Hi, Jonathan, says Kelby Carlson. Hello, Kelby Carlson, say I. I wanted to draw your attention and your listeners to a serious bug in iTunes that Apple seems not to care about. What glitch is this? When syncing music from your iTunes library to your iPhone, anytime you select an item, say an album or a playlist, you are immediately bumped back up to the top of the list. I have confirmed that this occurs with multiple screen readers in the latest version of iTunes. If you have thousands of albums, as I do, this makes syncing virtually impossible. I know that iTunes Match or Apple Music are solutions But blind people should not have to pay to sync their music if sighted people don't. I would ask you and all the listeners who use Apple devices to reach out to Apple and demand that this bug be fixed. I have already contacted Apple Accessibility with no successful response. Thanks, Kelby. I have not done any syncing like this for quite a long time, so I'm sorry to hear this. Apple's Windows applications do have a lot of problems. I mean, iCloud is another one, the iCloud for Windows thing. When you first install that and you have to select what it is you want to sync, if you use the touch cursor in JAWS, you can get there. You can understand what the checkboxes correspond to, but it's a little bit fiddly. It is not what I would call super accessible at all. 
And yes, iTunes has come and gone in terms of accessibility over the years. So I've not had any experience with this myself, but thanks for alerting us to it. If anybody has a workaround, perhaps an iTunes aficionado who uses it a lot, do let us know. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com or the listener line 864-606-6736. Iona is back and she says, thanks for including my mail on your show and for kindly expressing interest in my music. Very funny about me bringing a note. Well, you should. Indeed, there are various ways you can hear me, says Iona. I have an album on Spotify, Apple Music, etc. called Guitar Masterpieces from Bach to Barrios. I also have a YouTube channel with lots of videos from live performances and more recently guitar tutorials. And she's got the link here. It's www.youtube.com slash Iona Guitar. That's I-O-A-N-A Guitar on YouTube if you would like to check her music out. But back to our iOS discussion, says Iona. I like a feature of the iOS 14 beta feedback app that allows you to get an idea about how many similar reports they have received and if they are working on a resolution. This is great in theory, but I'm not sure how well it works. The two bugs I mentioned last week appear to tell me that there are no other similar reports, so I am hoping that the tracking of the feedback app is flawed rather than nobody else has reported this. In any case, like you... I do hope these issues will be fixed before full release. Thanks again for a great podcast. Thank you, Iona, for writing in. And it's nice to know that Apple has sort of fixed the browse screen input bug. Now, when you swipe right, it's echoing the space character before it speaks the word, which is slightly annoying. And I do hope Apple might consider changing it back to the way it used to work. But I mean, at least it's usable. And at this late point in the cycle, I think we will take what we can get. So I'm sure people will be relieved about that. I just don't think we need the space character echoed when we flick right. If we're going to hear the word anyway, it just delays hearing what we actually want to hear. The other thing that it fixed, this new beta, that I don't think we mentioned last week was the very weird way that it was pausing with the dash character, the hyphen character. So it would go double, tap to open. We Fee. That sounds like something from Jack and the Beanstalk. We fee five oh fum or something. Everywhere there was a dash, it was giving this bizarre little pause. <laughs> Not sure what that was about, but that is also fixed. So it is really heartening. And uh, congratulations to Apple for fixing some VO issues so late in the cycle. That's great. And thank you for telling us where to find your music, Iona. I will be sure to check it out. Jonathan Mosen. Hi there, Jonathan. It's Gary here. I just want to bring up a topic that was brought up a couple of weeks ago on the Mosin at Large. Uh, Somebody mailed in and they were talking about it's difficult to do things on the iOS device uh, or to do it fairly fast in the sense of using the rotor to go to the input braille, type your braille, and then use the rotor again to edit it and use the rotor again to find, for example, scrolling by words and again by lines, etc., etc., All good and well, yes, it takes quite a bit of time, but my point is this. I feel we should be very grateful to have what we have got for the things that we can do on our devices. There are people that will argue and say we spend the same amount of money on 
a device as any sighted person would, and they can do the things 10 times faster. Rightly so. I agree with that. But it's still our choice to take out that amount of money and spend it on that device. You know, how much do we want it? How much do we need it? Years ago, they weren't talking cell phones, and there were blind people that also took out money to spend it on a device that they couldn't do half of the functions that anybody else could do on it. Technology has been improving very, very fast for quite a number of years, and we are doing amazing things that we didn't think possible uh, 10 years ago. Things are getting better even than they are now, and they will continue to get better. It will also help for the stereotypical sighted people out there that assume blind people can't do anything. I, for example, love showing off how my devices work, my PC, my, my phone, etc., etc., how it talks, how I can type on it, how I read incoming messages, etc., etc. And it's a boost for them because it teaches them what we are about and how we can do things. So I think that's another plus point as well. We don't have to ask half the amount of help as we needed to in times past before technology is what it is today. Gary, I agree with you and I also sound a note of caution. So I agree with you in that a gratitude practice is incredibly important. I keep a gratitude journal and I write in it every day. And even on the worst of days, I force myself to find 10 things that I'm grateful for today. And I do that at the end of the day. And it's a really good discipline. It helps to keep you focused. And there's all sorts of research that suggests that it helps you sleep as well. If you go to sleep feeling contented and even when times are tough, you can itemize those things that you are grateful for. But being grateful for things and having a license to dream and to wish for better things are not mutually exclusive. You can still be appreciative of what you have. And in your example, to look at a user interface and say, this is suboptimal. In 2008, for example, many of us were grateful for the Nokia Symbian phones that we had at the time, and some of us were using devices like the N82 and the N86, and we had the KNFB reader on those devices. There were Daisy players and various other podcast clients, you name it. But that doesn't stop us from dreaming for better things, and we could see that the iPhone and touch-based devices were taking over the world and that we were being excluded. If we had just been grateful and buried our heads in the sand ostrich-wise, then we wouldn't be enjoying the access to smartphones that we do now. So you've always got to push the boundaries. You've always got to think what's next. And sometimes that has taken legal action to say to companies, actually, it's illegal under various jurisdictions for you to exclude blind people in the way that you are doing. So as somebody who has had a few pretty significant advocacy victories over the years, legislative and otherwise, yes, gratitude's absolutely vital. So you keep that sense of perspective, but never stop thinking that there might be a better way. I have had a lot of amazing reaction to the episode on low-carb living and eating, some for the podcast and some not. Here's Marissa, who says, thank you for your podcast as always. I appreciate the listener who asked about health and low-carb. I have struggled with weight most of my life. I have high, high blood pressure and some other health conditions. The keto diet is very popular for women who have a health condition called PCOS, that stands for polycystic ovary syndrome, which I have. This disorder can also mess with hormones that regulate appetite, among other things. Insulin resistance is common, 
there is a higher risk of developing life-changing disease. There are also issues for women with their menses, infertility, hair loss, the list goes on. The condition makes it more difficult for women to lose weight. I personally cannot do keto due to being pre-diabetic, and my endocrinologist says no to it. I am starting my weight loss journey with consistency. I really have issues with portion control, trying to work on ditching the sodas. I am doing my stationary bike and will consider lap swimming, once the pandemic ends, of course. I wanted to shed some light. Remember for your listeners out there that if they have a salad or they have a Subway sandwich or something like that, that salad dressing can be very high in calories and fat. So sometimes looking for something like a vinaigrette might be an option. Mustard is a great condiment that as long as you don't use too much is better than mayo. The hidden danger also lies, as you mentioned, with sugar, because sugar is in everything. P.S. I would love to eat more salmon, as it's good for you, but I cannot stand the taste. Mm, That's a bit of a problem. I can see that. Any recipes to mask that taste, says Marissa. I'm not aware of any. I mean, fish taste is quite hard to get rid of, isn't it, when you've got fish? Thank you so much, Marissa. I want to comment on a couple of things. Obviously, from a low-carb point of view, high fat is great. So if you can find a salad dressing with high fat and you're on a low-carb lifestyle, that's what you want to look for. Personally, I usually get Subway or any of those things delivered from Uber Eats, and I just tell them not to give me any salad dressing, and I'll use olive oil instead. But the most important thing about your email is your comment that you can't do low-carb because you're pre-diabetic. I would strongly encourage you for the sake of your health and the rest of your life, to seek different advice. Because I have seen people all over the world for many years on different support groups for low-carb eating that I have been a part of who have actually adopted a low-carb lifestyle precisely because they are pre-diabetic. And the results have been miraculous. They have had their pre-diabetic condition completely eliminated because they have gone low carb. Now it's difficult because in the past, I think there's been this tendency to trust everything that our particular doctor says. And I remember as a kid, if we would go to our family doctor, it was like kind of getting the word direct from God, you know, the doctor knew everything. And unfortunately, some doctors are just not up to speed with the very quickly evolving literature, compelling literature on low carb. So there might be a range of things that you're dealing with in your particular situation, and it sounds like that is the case. But if you're specifically being told that your pre-diabetic condition is a reason for not going low-carb, that's exactly the opposite advice of what many low-carb advocates have found, that you can actually, by going low-carb, really transform your life before it might be a lot more complicated to do so. So if you have access to independent advice from somebody who understands the low-carb literature, I would definitely seek that advice. Also, of course, if you were able to go low-carb in a safe way, that would most certainly help with your portion control. Because when you're going low-carb, you're eating lots of filling, fatty foods, and it fills you up more quickly, and therefore you're less inclined to eat as much. So 
big help with portion control. Very best of luck, Marissa. I hope it all works out and that you succeed in your weight loss goals. Kelly Muggridge is writing in from the UK and says, Hello, Jonathan. I love listening to your podcast as it has a lot of useful information regarding blind and partially sighted people in mind. I haven't emailed you before, but felt that I had to after listening to your interesting podcast on ketogenics and low-carb dieting. I agree on the fact that we all need to eat healthily and need at least five portions of fruit and vegetables a day. All these diets are fine to an extent, but I think a well-balanced diet is just as important. I think that a little of what you fancy does you good in moderation. There's nothing wrong with having a piece of cake as long as you do it once a month, for example. You need to treat yourself now and again as long as you don't do it often. I did a course on malnutrition whilst at college, and what I had learned is that you do need a certain amount of starch to give you oodles of energy especially if you are exercising. Whole grain bread is full of fiber and vitamins that your body needs for fuel. The only vegetable that doesn't count towards your five a day is potatoes. Every single fruit and vegetable is good for you. Although you need to eat a potato, you still need your vegetables with it. The only thing I don't have a lot of is dairy products, as this should be done in moderation. What I would say to you and everybody else is eat foods that are low on fats, high on carbs, eat at least five portions of fruit and veg a day, treat yourself but not too often, and anything that is high on fats should be eaten in moderation. One more thing I need to stress is that you should eat plenty of whole grain foods as it contains fiber. If you want a good breakfast, then eat a bowl of porridge with a banana or other fruits with a little honey. That will keep you full throughout the rest of the day, and you will never have to snack. If you do feel hungry, then snack on some fruit, such as an apple-slash-banana-slash-orange, and so on, or munch on a raw carrot. More importantly, you do need to eat meat, as it has amino acids. I love my fruit and veg, but hate eggs and tomatoes. I hope that helps you, and if you still want to stick to a low-carb diet, then well done, but you must eat five portions of fruit and veg a day. All fruit and veg is good for you. Thank you very much, Kelly. I'm really pleased that you're listening, and I appreciate you taking the time to write. Unfortunately, the advice you give is completely impossible because you can't stick to a low-carb diet if you're going to eat five servings of fruit in particular a day. Lots of vegetables are good for you, and you can get a lot of fiber from vegetables. But if you eat that much fruit, you're going to kick yourself way out of ketosis, as you will do if you eat something as high in natural sugars as honey. So what I'm saying to you is it's one or the other. You either decide based on your reading or your studying or whatever you choose to do that you're going to go for a low-carb, high-fat diet. So in my world, fat is not an evil thing. Fat is a good thing. I eat a lot of fatty food. I eat a lot of protein and almost no fruit, as I said in the podcast episode previously, apart from a few berries. So if you want to go low-carb, you can't eat all of the things that you're talking about including the grains and the fruit. It's impossible to be low-carb 
and do that. And I think one of the things that you illustrate in your message is that you repeatedly say that all these things are good for you without actually saying what your scientific basis is for asserting that. And this is the trap that I got into that I talked about in my testimony in the last episode, that in my 20s, I was so scared about the Atkins diet, despite the very positive impact it was having on me. And people said to me exactly what you just said. Fruit's good for you. You have to have it. Keep the fat low. This is irresponsible. But the thing is, it didn't work. And it didn't work for the millions of people around the world now in better shape than they've ever been in their life because they're eating plenty of fat and keeping the carbs low. So it would be interesting to see what you think if you choose to read some of the books that I recommended, particularly Why We Get Fat by Gary Torbs and The Big Fat Surprise by Nina Taichos, because that would contradict, both of those books would contradict what you learned in your nutrition course. We have a pandemic going on around the world right now, not just the coronavirus one, but we have a pandemic of obesity and we have a pandemic of diabetes. It is out of control. And one of the reasons, in my opinion, for that is that people are following this high-carb, low-fat lifestyle. And if people who are genuinely trying are finding it hard to keep the weight off with that high-carb stuff, while those who are sticking to low-carb are having stunning result, it might just be that the conventional orthodoxy has got it terribly, tragically wrong. Although, certainly in some countries, the orthodoxy is changing. And from my perspective, that's wonderful. And feedback already coming in to Marissa's message from Caroline Taves, and she says it's interesting how medical professionals have such different opinions. She says that she has type 2 diabetes, and their dietitian is in full support of them adopting a low-carb lifestyle, and they begin next week. That is wonderful that you found somebody so informed, Caroline, and I wish you all the best with the journey. Following Addie's message in our low-carb special on Mosin at Large, I thought it would be interesting to ask people how they learned to cook, whether there are any special gadgets in the kitchen that help you, and I thought I would start. Not that I am an expert in this area by any means, as anyone will tell you, I probably should do a lot more there than I do. I guess my redeeming feature is that I do help out a lot with Bonnie's technology, and she probably puts up with my lack of participation in the kitchen as a result. But yes, I should do more. Although, when I was at the School for the Blind, I do remember that we had a cooking teacher, and we took cooking classes, which I'm grateful for. But as I recall, we seemed to do a lot of baking in those classes, rather than practical things that would actually help you survive in an independent environment. When I was thinking about going out on my own, I also asked for after-school assistance and I bought a microwave and we had a TDL, a Techniques of Daily Living instructor, who came over and assisted me in our own kitchen at home to learn to do various things. And because the microwave was a gadget, and we're talking the 1980s, so it was a fairly new gadget, that appealed to me, it incentivized me to have a play in the kitchen because of the gadgets. 
So you've got to find a hook, I guess. Now, Jane Jordan is writing in on this subject, and she says, When I lived with my parents, I somehow learned how to boil an egg on the stove, and I don't remember how I learned this. Then I must have had an accident in the kitchen, because for several years I quit doing that much. The most I did was the microwave. I remember when Mom got it as a Christmas present one year and how disappointed I was that it was impossible to feel the buttons. Anyway, I used a microwave and a toaster, and that was it. When I turned 18 and failed out of a college prep course at our rehab center, I stayed a year because I knew there were skills I needed to learn. I learned how to cook properly this time on either an electric or a gas stove and how to bake. I made my sister brownies for her birthday one time and another time I made my own birthday cake. It was dry tasting and not even spread, but it was edible. And I guess the cool thing, Jane, is that it was yours, right? And that you made it yourself and you can take pride in that. Jane continues, Eric does most of the cooking now. That's Jane's husband. I just use our electric skillet to fry things. And of course, I will use our microwave but I am uncomfortable with our stove and oven. We have a nice combination microwave convection oven that Amazon sells on our wish list. It is supposed to have a Braille overlay and you can control it with your voice. I'm looking forward to getting that. I miss baking. Heather does most of that now. She's better at it, but I still would like to get back into it. One rule I have instituted is that if I am cooking, unless I specifically ask for Eric, he has to stay out of the kitchen. I hate cooking with other people watching. Some of my best times learning to fry chicken was while he had a job and I had to make my own meals. I went through a lot of chicken, but I learned. I burnt stuff. Sometimes I didn't get stuff all the way cooked. The good thing was that he didn't have to eat it at the time. I only saved my best efforts for him then. Nice, well-cooked meat with melted cheese on top for him. Thank you, Jane. Good to get your email, and it definitely resonates. I find that if you're cooking with sighted family around hovering, it is really disconcerting, especially if you don't have a lot of confidence in the kitchen and you're trying to learn. I remember telling someone once, I just want to be able to burn my own dinner because sometimes you have to. I think the worst mistake I have ever made in the kitchen was when I was putting in a roast dinner, and I do love my roast dinner. And normally, I wear oven gloves when I'm going to put something into the oven or take something out of the oven. And you put these gloves on, and you can feel everything really well. You can get a good grip on things, but they are incredibly heat resistant. So you can pick things up right out of the oven with these gloves on and put them on the bench top or whatever, the countertop as they call it in America. And it works really well. But I was just going to put in the roast meal one night. And because it was going into the oven, I didn't put the oven gloves on. And I started sliding in this big roasting pan with stuff into the oven. And there was some sort of unexpected sound that made me jump. And when I jumped, I moved leftward sort of instinctively and hit the wall of the oven with my left hand. And of course I went, ouch! And then I jumped and moved the other hand on the right of the stove and went, ouch, again. 
So I had these big burns on both hands because I was just in a hurry putting in the roast meal and didn't put the of gloves on. Oh, my word. That one may have been so bad that I actually said, holy soup, forgive me, forgive me. Hi, Jonathan. This is Wes from Iowa here. One of my favorite devices as of late is my Instant Pot Duo. And it has a backstory. I'd always wanted to buy one, but I was always afraid that I wouldn't use it. I'm not the world's most enthusiastic cook. I do a lot of meat on my George Foreman. I don't like to do really involved dishes because it's it's just me living in my apartment right now. And so uh, I didn't know that I wanted to buy one. Well, my parents had gotten one for free from somewhere and they were scared to use it because of they had read all the horror stories about them exploding and whatever. And I knew some blind friends who really liked theirs. And so I asked them if uh, we could try it out. They came to stay with me. They're about, they live about 300 miles from here and they came to stay with me for a weekend and we tried to make a meal in it and they weren't real impressed with it. And they were really scared that I was going to burn myself. Uh, my sister actually said, you aren't going to use this thing by yourself, are you? And I said, yeah, I plan to. They said they'd leave it if I promised that I wouldn't burn myself. And I said, yeah, I, I don't believe that I'm going to burn myself. There's a lot of people using them or whatever. And so they left it. Used our friendly neighborhood, Ira, to learn the button layout and do a lot of Googling and things. And uh, not to be dramatic, but I, I feel like the Instant Pot got me through the pandemic because I made a lot of chicken thighs, a lot of beef, a lot of uh, and spaghetti and chili. And it's not that the device is uh, safer than cooking on the stove because it still gets hot and things. I think the reason I like it so much is because it's all contained. And it's also very quick. I can make chicken thighs from the frozen bag in the freezer in 11 minutes of high pressure cooking. Now there is some ramp up time and you do have to let it release pressure after it's done, but still, and they're very flavorful. So I really like the instant pot. Um, mine does not have the soup drinker integration. I don't know that it needs it because there are a lot of beep tones. If you set something in a way and you don't uh, know how you set it, you can hold in a button and it'll double beep to let you know that it reset the program to default. When you get to the bottom of the time or the top of the time, it double beeps to let you know that you're there. So it's a very useful device. One question I have for you is, it seems like the responses I hear about the iOS betas run the gamut. Some blind people think it's really awesome. Some blind people think that it's really disgraceful. If a person is curious about testing one of these betas, what advice would you give them about how to critically make that decision as to whether to participate or not? I've always been on the fence about trying them, but also feel like people need to give feedback. Good to hear from you, Wes. The Instant Pot has always interested me, and I don't think it's available in New Zealand yet. Last time I checked, which was maybe a year or more now, it was not available here, which is quite strange because I think it is available in some markets where they do 240 volts and all that sort of thing. So maybe I should check again. It's amazing how a gadget can just incentivize you to cook. We like our air fryer. Our microwave does double duty. It's also a steam type oven and that's delicious for fresh vegetables steamed. Oh my word. Regarding the beta thing, 
I guess the optimal situation would be if you have an older iPhone or you've got the dosh to fork out for a second iPhone that you're not using for your primary device, then go ahead and test the beaters. Some people have work phones and home phones, so you could possibly upgrade your home phone. Thankfully, with dual SIMs, that's becoming less and less necessary now because you can have your work and home accounts on your same device. But yeah, ideally, having one that's just for test purposes is fine. Not everybody can afford to do that, but have a lot to contribute. So in that case, I would put my ear to the ground, find out how the beaters are looking. If they look stable for the most part, then obviously it's a calculated risk about taking the plunge. Hey, Jonathan, this is Mickey. I have a desktop uh, machine. I've had it for about about three and a half years. It's a a, uh, machine that uh, currently has a 500 gig uh, hard drive in it. It's an HP uh, machine is what it is. And I'm kind of toying with the idea of putting a solid state drive into the machine and just needing some kind of uh, some advice or something to uh, what should I look for when I shop for a hard drive and things to watch for before purchasing the drive and making sure that the drive is compatible with my computer. Thank you very much for your contribution, Mickey, and upgrading PCs is always fun. So I thought we'd bring a bit of a guest on. Well, not a bit of a guest, a whole guest. <laughs> it's Henry, the wonder son-in-law from the other side of Wellington. And Henry, you and I have been bonding over building various PCs over the last few years because you quite like to do it, don't yeah. you? Yeah, oh, it's uh, definitely a hobby of mine. I'd happily do it for a living, but it doesn't quite make enough money here in New Zealand. So what do you think about this hard drive dilemma then? So we're going from a, uh, what, what, what's the opposite of solid state? What do they call that? Uh, there's a few different names. Uh, hard disk drive is what is like the system standard, but a lot of people call it spinning disk or mm. slow storage. There are upsides and downsides of, of everything. What's the upside of going solid state? That would mainly be speed, wouldn't it? Yep, so it's it's definitely a speed impro- uh, improvement. That's about the only only major upside. If you were looking for, say, long-term storage for files, spinning disk is uh, a better option. But if you're looking for, like, say, your operating system and a few key programs used all the time, solid state is where to go. And the reason for that is that solid state have a definite number of times that they will write, is that correct? And then eventually yeah. they, they wear out. Yeah. So, yeah, they've got a limited read-write time. Uh, some of them are all the way up to 10,000 read-writes, which seems low, but in a computer world, that can last like six to 10 years, depending on how frequently you're writing to it. And as, is that number going up? Like as solid-state drives develop, are they increasing how long they will last? Yeah, so there's actually a few different uh, technologies behind solid state, and it depends on whether the chips, the NAND flash, which is the type of storage it is, is uh, single layer or multi-layer. There's a a few different options. There's also uh, e-multi-layer, which is enterprise, so that's talking data center grade hard drives. So there's yeah, it all kind of depends on where it's sitting at the technology level. 
what factors does he need to be aware of in terms of compatibility with the system that he already has? Okay, so the first major one would be the age of the system. So a lot of SSDs nowadays are built on the SATA 3 specification, which SATA 3 allows up to uh, 6 gigabits a second transfer speed. Anything before 2009 is going to be on the uh, two sl- um, SATA 2, which is will be a lot slower. The other thing is the type of connection. So there's a few different ones out there, SATA being the sort of most common one, but there are ones which are coming, becoming more and more common uh, known as M.2 or NVMe, and they've got a completely different connector altogether. So for best uh, insurance of compatibility, the best thing to look out for is SATA, to make sure it's SATA. Three, effectively. Right. And presumably he's going to have somebody put this drive in so they would be able to look that up. But it sounds like, because he said that the computer was about three years old, so I'm pretty confident it would be SATA 3 by then. Oh, yes. If it's only three years old, then yes, it will definitely have SATA 3 compatibility. So it sounds like it could be a real speed increase. Now, here's a question for you. If you had a choice, let's say you've got a computer with eight gigs of RAM, which is not a lot these days. I remember when 640K was a lot. Anyway, (laughs) you got a computer with 8 gigs of RAM and you had the choice of updating to a faster hard drive, a faster processor, or adding, say, 8 or 16 gigs more RAM. What do you think would be the most impactful way to spend the money? Uh, Most impactful would definitely be upgrading to an SSD. Having extra RAM is always useful if you're doing like programs like Photoshop or or audio editing, things like that. In general, an entire system speed up performance update would be an SSD. And we're building the new mushroom. You are building the new mushroom pot at the moment. I am indeed. Yeah, so that's exciting. Now, did we end up going, we didn't put an SSD in that, did we, in the end? No, we didn't in the end. We decided that because for the most part, it's going to be doing a fair number of read-writes all the time for accessing the audio feed or the music. Uh, not so many writes, but a lot of reads. Yeah. And, so, and it's long-term storage effectively. So it was like uh, spinning disk made more sense in this use case. Yes, absolutely. So it's about what are you going to use it for and picking the right tool. Yeah, exactly. Another thing to look out for, just on a further note, is the brand. Usually I'd recommend looking at a Kingston or a WD or a Samsung. They're all really good hard drives. There are plenty of other good brands out there as well, but you've kind of got to be careful because some of them uh, on the cheaper side might not be as good. Now, on that subject, we have actually had somebody on the show today talking about imaging and making a backup of your entire system. And I know that there is a tool in Windows that actually is kind of like a legacy tool from Windows 7 that will create an image of your machine and you can copy that onto a portable drive. There are other imaging technologies. But I assume I'm right in saying that if you image a computer because you are backing up and wanting to upgrade your computer, you can't really take that image across, can you? Because all the drivers will be different. It depends on which bit you upgrade. So if you're just upgrading the hard drive, you can. If you're doing like a full motherboard change out and CPU change out, not so much. It's uh, It all kind of depends on the component you're changing. Right. 
So, for example, in the situation where we're doing the mushroom pod change, we're having a whole new computer with every single thing new. An image would not be an appropriate solution in that situation because all the components are different and require different drivers. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. But if you're just upgrading the hard drive, it could be perfect. You could plonk all your stuff back on because all the components in the system and therefore the drivers that are required will be the same. Just one thing to uh, another thing to note is the speed of the read and write. Um, a lot of people will re- see it and sort of have a little bit of freak out. Go, why is the write speed lower than the read speed? That's sort of industry standard. It's always going to write a little bit slower than it reads. It's just to do with the the way the NAND flash works. The hard drive I tend to buy if I'm buying a solid state for someone just as an OS drive has a read speed of 500 megabytes a second and a write speed of 350 megabytes per second. So yeah, it seems a little bit slower, but it's actually, uh, it's, it's really not that much in terms of writing, like say a file, like a word document or something to the computer. It'll be instantaneous, basically. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Olga gives me the opportunity to talk about something I enjoy talking about, and that is grammar. He says that he is listening live, and he does listen live most weeks. So thank you very much, Olga. Really appreciate that. And he says, we are listening live, Bella and I. Or is that me? One of the most common grammatical errors that people make is using I when they mean me because somehow they think that me is somehow informal or wrong or something like that. And so you have people saying, between you and I. Now, there is never a time when between you and I is grammatically correct. Now, let's say you get an invitation by email, and somebody says, would you and Bonnie like to come to our dinner party? Now, do I write back and say, Yes, Bonnie and I would love to be there, or Bonnie and me would love to be there. Now, in that case, you write I. Bonnie and I would love to be there. So how do you know when to use I and when to use me? Another example I'll give is the internet radio one. And in a lot of blindness internet radio stations where co-hosts are doing a show, you'll see join so-and-so and I for the next hour. And that's wrong. So how do you know when to use which? It's really easy. Take the other person out of the equation. So if you would say, yes, I would love to attend, then you'd say, yes, Bonnie and I would love to attend. If you would say, join me at the top of the hour, then it's join my co-host and me at the top of the hour. So this one is a really simple one to do. When you're not sure about when to use I and when to use me, take the other person out of the mix Realize what you would say in that eventuality, and then you'll know which one to use. Thanks very much for the question, Holger. Love talking about that stuff. On the subject of email lists, Dan Tebald is in touch and says, Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for raising this issue on your last podcast. I participate in many discussion groups and find that many people abuse them. People constantly post off-topic messages, forget to change the subject line in their posts, forget to check spelling and punctuation, and most annoying of all, send one-line messages with words like thank you or I will have to try that, etc. Sometimes it seems like some blind people have nothing better to do than ask for help when they could take the time to figure out problems for themselves. I usually end up only reading the first few lines of a message and ignore the rest if it isn't interesting or relevant. Thank you, Dan. 
I don't know whether this is a blindness thing necessarily, is it? Because there are lots of badly behaved people on email lists and social media, whether they've got working eyeballs or not. One thing I do agree with you on, though, is that some people do treat email lists as if it were Google. They're essentially typing in a question and hoping for someone to bail them out. Whereas actually, if they used Google or your favorite search engine, DuckDuckGo, Bing, you name it, you'd get the result right away. So I suppose it's a question of the tool in the toolbox that's going to get you the answer most efficiently. And often, unless it's a really obscure question, typing it into Google will yield instant results. Whereas with an email list, you have to wait for people to come back and you might even get conflicting or incorrect information. Whereas the hope is that Google's search algorithms will prioritize the accurate stuff at the top. Hello, Jonathan. This is Stuart Lawler from Dublin in Ireland. Um, Just with a quick comment in relation to last week's show, where you were discussing email lists and uh, specifically rules for managing emails. And uh, I, for the couple of lists I'm on, have rules and emails get automatically put into folders and I can review them when I have time. But just one thing I wanted to mention about rules is that you talked a lot about IMAP. Of course, the best way, if you can do it, to manage rules is by using Microsoft Exchange or Office 365 if you have that service for your email uh, subscription. In fact, I pay about 60 euros a year for um, an Exchange Plan 1, uh, Exchange Online Plan 1 is what Microsoft call it, subscription for my personal email. And I actually think it's well worth it. Uh, it's far more powerful than IMAP because you also have contact, contact and calendar synchronization. And creating rules, uh, both server side and client side, can be done from Microsoft Outlook. So if people have access to um, Microsoft Exchange, lots of people will use it in work already. But if you can get it for your personal uh, email address, and it's very easy easy to do that uh, with Microsoft, then I think it's definitely well worth doing and actually much more powerful than IMAP. Thank you so much, Stuart. Good to hear from you. And yeah, I completely agree. If you want to go the exchange route, you have so many options available to you. And I really like working with Microsoft Exchange. I do it in my work life and have always enjoyed it. One of the reasons why I haven't done it in my personal email accounts is that I have a lot of people on the Mosin.org domain, family members, and it's always seemed a little bit daunting to have to convert them over. If it was just for me, I think I would have done it some time ago. That said, these days, auto configuration of email is a lot better than it used to be, especially with services that are well supported like Microsoft Exchange. So it is something I might have a look at at some point. So I really appreciate you adding that as an option. Hi, Jonathan. It's Daniel. Pardon the background noise. I'm watching TV as this is being recorded. Anyway, um, I just wanted to ask, since we're talking about all this older tech and you're playing the magazine, when did it, like, eloquence come out? Well, first of all, turn off that, turn off that television, Daniel. Turn that thing off at once. It'll corrupt your brain cells. That's what it will do. Now, when did Eloquence come out? Well, I'm stalling here. I don't exactly remember. Would it have been about JAWS version 3 point something, possibly? It came out in the mid to late 90s, and it was a breakthrough. Because before that, the speech synthesizers were all hardware. You'd either have a card that you had to pop your PC open and put the card in and uh, you'd have a speaker that would plug into the, the 3.5 jack at the back of the card or sometimes... They even had the little external speakers 
or you had a box that plugged in usually to a serial port, an RS-232 port. And those serial ports started off as quite big, hunky 32-pin connectors, and then they started having these smaller serial ports that had 9-pin connectors on them. And woe betide you if, when trying to plug that thing into the serial port, you bent one of the pins, because then you would have to go and get a new cable. And it was all very complicated because a lot of these synthesizers used interrupts, which, thankfully, none of us have to worry about anymore, but you had to be really careful not to have interrupt conflicts. So if you had a modem and one of these speech synthesizers, you had to be really careful that they didn't use the same IRQ. Oh man, it's giving me the heebie-jeebies just thinking about it. And that is why you will get blind people of a certain generation who still ask people to come and install their jaws for them, for example, because they remember how it was actually a really highly skilled thing once, getting the combination of hardware and software to work. There was a real skill to it. And so when jaws came out with eloquence, it was a huge revolution, just simplifying the process so much. So yes, it was a big breakthrough, but I can't remember exactly when that happened, I did go on to the Freedom Scientific website and I see they have the What's New file in JAWS going all the way back to version 4, which is a very entertaining read, by the way, looking at all the things that JAWS has added over the years and how it's evolved. But it is further back than that. But I can remember some of these cards. I had the Accent card, which was very responsive. I liked that speech at the time, but I suspect if I heard an Accent PC now, I'd probably think, boy, that was awful speech. I had a Symphonics card that I used to use with Softvert. That was an Arctic Technologies card. What else did I have? Of course, the Keynote Golds, which I liked. I really liked the Keynote Gold speech. I had an internal one, and I also had a Keynote Gold, what do they call them, X... SA, I think, standalone maybe, and that plugged into a serial port. And the nice thing about that is that you could take it to different computers. So I had that. I'm just trying to remember what other speech synthesizers I had. But there were other popular ones like the Double Talk and, of course, the Deck Talk, which a lot of people lusted after. And I still do like the Deck Talk speech, actually. But there's no doubt that Eloquence was a game changer. And once Jaws came out with Eloquence, a lot of people looked at software options, including the DeckDog, DeckDog Access 32. DeckDog Access 32. Yeah, that was a good one. And then GW Micro distributed that one. And that was a quite important selling point for Window Eyes. You know, JAWS may have eloquence. We've got the much coveted DeckTalk. And then eventually you could buy a version of DeckTalk Access 32 that worked with JAWS. On to other technology reminiscences. Last week on the full version of Mosin at Large, on Mushroom FM, see what you miss if you don't listen to the full version, we played a little bit of an old raised dot computing newsletter from Cassette, and I introduced it, and I called David, David Halliday, which is such a common noob kind of mistake, because people confuse David Holliday with Jim Halliday, so sorry about that. Bruce Taves is writing in to talk about David Holliday, and he says, I was a huge fan of raised dot computing back in the day. In many ways, David Holliday was a real visionary. I remember recently coming across his proposal for Braille Edit, which would eventually become Bex. That's right, Braille Edit Express. And for those who don't go back that far, we are talking Apple computers here, the Apple IIe, the Apple IIc, the Apple IIgs. Bruce says, 
a lot of what he envisioned came true. He did get a few things wrong, such as when he predicted that laser disc technology was the way of the future and would be found in every home, but he got so much right, and Bex was an absolutely phenomenal program for its time. On one 360k disc, you had a word processor capable of doing some amazing formatting, as long as you knew the codes, a contextual replace feature that, to this day, is far and away the most powerful and flexible I've ever seen, a braille translator, a whole bunch of utilities, and even a little emergency space for word processing files if you needed it. 360k for all that. I had dreamed of graduating from high school and getting a job there. Those Apple IIe days were a lot of fun. Thank you for that email, Bruce. And actually, I gave my Apple IIe, once I migrated to the PC, to my then-girlfriend, Amanda, who became my first wife and mum of my kids, and she used Braille Edit Express specs all through university. She would actually write her essays, and she just memorized all the dollar commands and got really proficient with it. And she'd write in Bex and send her work to a good old, uh, what do they call that, dot matrix printer. Gosh, those dot matrix printers were noisy. But one of the cool things about dot matrix printers was because it left this quite distinct tactile indentation on the reverse side of the page, you could actually feel that your printing had printed. Didn't somebody do some form of Braille with a dot matrix printer like that? Gosh, this is bringing back all sorts of memories. And look, speaking of old technology, look at what has been dug out of the closet here. Well, hi, Jonathan and all your listeners. This is Andy Rebscher talking to you. And I have an old pal here that I'd like to introduce you to. I, I am your old friend, the Braille Bestie. Well, Mr. Braille and Speak, how's your health these days? I so, you mean I have to use a microphone to pick up what you say? That is correct. Okay, we can do that. What? What? Is that all there is? Aha, I was just getting into a long demo of the Braylon speak, but no, perhaps that's for another time, Andy. Nice, I wonder how many other people have their working Braylon speaks lurking about. And then I had an email from Darren McDougall with the subject, Eureka! And I thought, what's he found? What's his big discovery that he wants to share with the waiting world? But no, he's talking old technology. He says, Expectations, the Ziegler magazine, and the Eureka A4. Three great pieces of nostalgia there. I wish I still had a working Eureka and would love to have heard the demo that you mentioned. I used the Eureka for all my assignments in junior high and high school. It had a thermometer for checking the room temperature and had advanced calculator, clock, and calendar functions that compare with anything in today's smart devices. It was easy to switch between Braille grades 0, 1, and 2, 0 being computer Braille. Maybe the coolest feature of all, though, was the music composer. I played trumpet in the band. So I'd input my Braille music into the music composer, and then I'd know how my trumpet part was supposed to sound. For those lucky enough to have a Eureka with the advanced music option, Stevie Wonder took the time to code in the entire song with all instrumentation of I Just Called to Say I Love You. Eureka was awesome. By the way, 
Now that we're bringing this old stuff up again, I would love it if you or someone could send me the ringtone you featured a few months ago of the alarm from the sharp talking time. Waking up to that would bring me back 40 years. And who knows, I might not be quite as cranky as I am before coffee. That was Brian Gaff who sent that along. I don't think I still have it, Darren. You never know. He might send it to you if uh, if he's feeling generous. This is John Wesley Smith from Missouri in the U.S. On the subject of Braille magazines we used to read, I really enjoyed the Matilda Ziegler magazine and the Braille Mirror. And the great thing about those for me is that they were general interest magazines and they helped me to keep my Braille speed up. I didn't learn Braille until I was out of school and I uh, have some vision, so Braille was not my first uh, means of learning to read. And I've just never had great Braille reading speed. But those magazines were interesting. The articles were usually relatively short and the subject material was quite varied. So it wasn't a specialty type magazine like news or science or whatever. And uh, I just always enjoyed those magazines. They were easy to carry around and, and not bulky like a volume of a book or something like that. Thank you for sharing your memories, John. Lynette has been in touch. Very lively Lynette from New York. She says, I wrote for the Matilda Ziegler magazine for three years when it became an online-only publication. I truly enjoyed that wonderful job. Now it's time for Mosin at Large. Watch, watch. Here's Paul Hopewell. Hi, Jonathan. I have used Braille watches for around 30 years and have been happy with them. I used the Swiss Braille watches, which the RNIB in the UK sold for about £99, but have just checked today and these are no longer available. Instead, they sell the Bradley timepiece for about £240 and a range of tactile watches for around £40. I did try a cheaper Braille watch in the past for around £25, but it was not as elegant or as reliable as my Swiss Braille watch. My current Swiss watch is about four years old and I have changed the battery once via a high street jeweler. It currently loses about three minutes a week, which I correct every week or so. With a tactile watch, I can check the time without disturbing anyone, which is especially useful in bed. During meetings, I can secretly check the time under the table. <laughs> uh, boy, that resonates. Or behind my back. And it is something useful to very visibly flip open the watch and check the time to hopefully hurry up the meeting. My main problem with the tactile watch is telling the time when the hands are near overlapping. During the day, I usually know the hour, but on first waking up in the morning, it could be around 5.30 or 6.30, and I have to wait about 10 minutes for the minute hand to move to be confident about the time. I just put off the Apple Watch in the past, as the early models were rather large. However, I understand that they are now much smaller and more elegant, and the haptic time indication would have all the advantages of my Swiss watch and would solve the problem of the overlapping hands. My other concern is that I might become obsessed with all the health data on the Apple Watch. 
I currently check my daily step count on my iPhone and have been known to needlessly walk around to get it to an acceptable level. So, when my current Braille watch eventually fails, I will seriously consider an Apple Watch, which seems much better value for money than the Bradley timepiece. Thanks, Paul. The watch size hasn't changed, really. Uh, They're still in those two form factors that they've always had since the watch came out in 2015. It's possible they've become a little bit thinner, but I don't find the size inappropriately big. I do have the larger one because it has a slightly bigger battery, and I will certainly go for that, and it seems okay on my wrist. I don't know, is it possible to be overly obsessed with your health? I find all the data that the watch is increasingly collecting really good. It is a comfort to me that I can take an ECG, that it's monitoring my heart and uh, will alert me if there's any weird problem. In fact, the only time I've ever had it do anything like that was on the 20th of January, 2018. And I remember this well because it was Heidi's wedding day and she and Henry chose to have an outdoor wedding. So we're all out there. It was a bit touch and go too, because it was raining. The forecast wasn't that good. And then the weather cleared up in time for their wedding. So we were all out there and it was hot. You know, January's the summertime here. It was a sweltering day. And uh, father of the bride sitting there all in a suit and trying to look nice. And of course, it's a bit emotional. It's a bit emotional when your oldest daughter gets married. Next thing I know, I get this quite aggressive tap on my wrist. And it said, uh, we notice that your heart rate is quite elevated, given that we can also see you're not exercising. We're just letting you know in case there's any problem you should be aware of. So, and I think the other, actually, maybe the other time it did, it was the Cricket World Cup. But given where you come from, Paul, I'm not even going to go there. Good luck with your Apple Watch. Hello, Carol Ashland, who's emailing in on this subject. She says the best Braille watch I've ever had, and which I still have, is the watch put out by Seiko. And wonder of wonders, she says, it is sold by Amazon. Thank you. I appreciate that, Carol. So there's a tip for someone who might be looking for a good Braille watch. It is surprising how much assistive technology you can find lurking about on Amazon now. So that's quite exciting. Uh, Good afternoon, Jonathan. Uh, My name is um, Michael. Um, I appear to be having a problem with QCast, the app for Windows that I'm using to uh, listen to podcasts. Um, it appears that any of your podcasts, including The Blind Side, uh, In the Arena, and the one I'm talking about, Mosin at Large, QCast is saying that when I search for it, it's saying that the URL is invalid for the podcast. And when I add the RSS feed, so copy and paste the RSS feed. It's saying it's an unrecognized podcast and it says that it cannot find the feed for the URL and then it specifies the URL. Are you aware of this happening or is this the first time that you've been made aware of it? I have not been made aware of it before and it's really out of my control, I'm afraid. I don't know what podcast directories that app is scraping and how it's configured. And to the best of my knowledge, it may not have been updated for quite some time. I do recall that we had a bit of a discussion about podcast apps on the show some weeks ago, and people suggested there were more up-to-date options for Windows if you really did want to listen to your podcast on Windows. Not many people do. Looking at the statistics, if you add all of the different Apple podcast apps together, then by far 
the majority of people listen on the iPhone. The biggest single source is the Victor Reader stream, but it's kind of a dodgy comparison because, as I say, there are several apps for iOS. If you added them all up together, then they do beat the stream. But that's how most people seem to listen to Mosin at Large. At the moment, only 2% of Mosin at Large listeners listen with an Android device. So I don't know if you've paid for this, Michael. I don't know whether it is still being developed, still being supported. If it is, you could contact the developer and bring it to their attention. Michael Pantelidis is in touch. He says, Hi, Jonathan. After listening to your podcasting podcast, I thought I would give podcasting a go with Pinecast. Woo! <laughs> That's a tongue twister. <clears throat> anyway, I thought I would try it for free before going on a plan. I was able to create an account and upload a trailer at first. I then searched for it on the podcast apps, including Apple and Castro, but there were no results on both apps. I contacted Matt from Pinecast a number of times, and he said to upload my RSS feed to the apps. I explained to him I was not sure what they were and where located. He replied and told me where I would find them, but no luck. I have come to the end of the road, it seems. Can you please advise me on how to find these feeds, please? Happy to help if I can, Michael. So let me explain what's going on here. Pinecast is now hosting your podcast, and that's its job. Since you've set up a free podcast on Pinecast, it has created an RSS feed for you. But publishing to your podcast on Pinecast does not mean that other people can hear it. Think of it a bit like a radio station. If you're sitting in the studio and you're chatting away on the microphone and playing records, but you haven't turned the transmitter on, then no one can hear your radio station. And that's the point that you're at right now. What you have to do to broadcast your podcast to the world is list the RSS feed in podcast directories. Now, the key one to be in is Apple Podcasts, because once you get into Apple Podcasts, that is the directory that many other podcast apps, including Castro and Overcast and Pocket Casts, scrape. Once you're in Apple Podcasts, you're in a lot of apps. So to get there, you have to find Apple Podcast Connect, I believe it's called these days. You can Google for that, and it should come up. Sign in, and you'll need to use your Apple ID to sign in, and you need to submit your RSS feed to Apple. It will take some days because a human actually reviews the RSS feed. It's a manual process. So you have to be patient and wait a few days to be approved. You should also go through a similar process with Spotify and probably Google Podcasts as well. They would be the key ones. Now, in terms of where you find your RSS feed, This will differ depending on which podcast provider you are with, but since we're both with the same podcast host, I can tell you easily where to get to it on Pinecast. All you do is you go to pinecast.com, choose the sign-in link, sign in if you have to, often it remembers your credentials. You're on the dashboard with the window title, My Podcasts, and search for the name of your podcast if you like, just to get there quickly, and press enter on the name of your podcast. When you're on that screen, and it lists the episodes that you've published so far. So in your case, there'd only be the one, the trader that you've done. Search on the word RSS. So if you're using JAWS push control F and type RSS and push enter, you'll be on a read-only edit field. 
that displays your RSS feed. You can copy that to the clipboard. So select it in the read-only field. It'll have uh, an RSS extension, I think, from memory. Copy it to the clipboard, and that is the feed that you need to give to Apple Podcasts and other places to get your podcast actually listed in those apps. So you're halfway there. You've got your podcast set up. Now you need to submit the podcast and let the world know that it exists. Best of luck. Podcast. Today, says Debbie Armstrong, I've been on YouTube listening to John Lord after he left Deep Purple and before they formed up again, and also Camel. I love progressive rock because it combines rock, jazz, flamenco, reggae, classical, and so many other sub-genres. So why don't any of the blindness radio stations play it? I have to get my fix by listening to prog rock radio or Morrow FM on the internet. I discovered progressive rock in high schools in the 1970s when a few college radio stations started playing it on FM and fell in love. Then I went to Germany as an exchange student, and all across Europe, teens were digging progressive rock. I met numerous blind folks who had huge record collections. I spent many contented afternoons snuggled up in someone's bedroom listening to progressive rock on their souped-up stereo. Genesis, Roxy Music, Triumvirate, Straubs, PFM, Yes, Jethro Tull, and many lesser-known and often better artists entertained me. So where did all the progressive rock go today? Debbie, it went to a show called The Depths on Mushroom FM, which has just finished its present series. Unfortunately for you, The Depths was a four-hour show that was on from 11 p.m. Eastern till 3 a.m. Eastern on a Saturday night going into Sunday morning, and then it was replayed on a Wednesday afternoon, and it had all of that stuff that you were talking about, going way off the beaten track and playing all sorts of stuff. So this Blindness Radio Station absolutely does play it. And we still play groups like Genesis and Yes and some of that stuff, quite a bit of Deep Purple and Pink Floyd in the playlist. But The Depths was exactly the show that you were looking for. Sorry that you missed it. And the moral of the story is, check the Mushroom FM schedule regularly. Maybe there'll be another series of The Depths at some point. Paul Jenkins is back in touch. Hello, Paul. He says, I use one and sometimes two computers for work. And on the job, I receive cue calls on my iPhone 8 using the Ring Central app. Have you heard of it, says Paul? Yes, I have, but I have not used it. One of the computers, a laptop, is onboard Bluetooth capable, and the other, a desktop, is not. I'd like a comfortable Bluetooth headset solution that allows me to hear all three of these sources simultaneously. Do you have any suggestions? I started some research and got lost in the audio mixer verbiage because I am more productive. I really enjoy teleworking. I'm worried that a solution to this issue may break the bank. Thank you, Paul. I don't know if there is a headset that will handle all three of those devices, particularly when you've got one that doesn't do Bluetooth, although you could get a Bluetooth dongle. We had quite a lengthy and interesting discussion about this very thing early on in the pandemic. So I'd encourage you to go back into the show notes for the podcasts and have a look at them. And you'll find maybe it was about, I don't know, March or April, I would think, 
that we started discussing this over a series of episodes and people came up with various solutions, including a headset that let you listen to two devices at once. Because a lot of these headsets will let you pair with more than one device, but you're only listening to one device at a time and that's not going to work for you. But I don't think there was a headset in that range that extended to three devices. What I would do, and a couple of people took my advice and were very happy that they did, I remember that, was buy a simple mixer. It doesn't have to be elaborate, just something that you can plug three different things into. So you would run a cable from one set of line inputs in the mixer to the 3.5 headphone jack via the little dinky adapter that Apple sells for your iPhone and do the same for your other two computers. And then everything will come through the headphones that you plug into the mixer and you'll have a series of dials to adjust the relative volumes of those three devices. It's definitely not complicated to set up and it surely won't break the bank. You could get a mixer that does this for well under a hundred bucks. So by all means, fossick around through the archives, Paul. There are answers there. But the mixer thing, if you can't find a headset that will do it, might be the way to go. Yes, that familiar tune ushers in another exciting instalment. Previously in the Bonnie Bulletin. How's it going? Good. Hi, guys. Yeah. Hi guys. Tremendous. Yeah. Now, you have an email here uh-huh. from Sharon Lash. Mm-hmm. Do you know Sharon Lash? Uh, I think I know the name. Yeah, she listens to the 80s show. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. She's a real glutton for punishment then. Yeah. Cool name, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, uh, Sharon Lash wants to know, I mean, she didn't actually swear, so I'm paraphrasing here, but effectively what she's saying is, what the soup... What what the soup is chicken sushi? She said, "I thought you have to have fish in sushi." What that's are you on about, what Bonnie I thought, Mosin? That's what, are you? what that's what I thought too, Sharon. And I wouldn't touch it because the Can't the fact it. of eating raw fish is just not appealing. And can I beatbox um, on the Bonnie Bulletin? No, I guess. Yeah. Um, but when I came here and they, Heidi and Nicola were wanting to get sushi and I said, yuck, I don't want raw fish. And they said, we don't, we get chicken. I'm like, what do you mean get chicken? And it's the same concept that it has the rice, you know, wrapped around it and the salads, but you can get it with different types of chicken, like teriyaki chicken. Yeah, sure. I mean, haven't you, haven't you heard of that book called Chicken Sushi for the Soul? Mm. They have a whole lot of those books, don't they? a huge fan of those i mean they're I, kind of like the cited equivalent of the kernel books yeah <laughs> they kind of are yeah i find that a lot of those books just irritate me more than you know bring there's chicken soup for the mother chicken Ugh. soup for I the mean, grandmother chicken, if, you, if you have chicken dog soup in a book title it's like it must have been written by the new defense against the dark arts teacher mm-hmm. who would call a book Because every Jewish mother knows that chicken soup is penicillin. You know, we call it Jewish penicillin. Right. Well, great. I like chicken soup. Oh, get out! I'd like to get some good matzo ball soup because a friend of mine was talking about the yesterday. Can't get that here. Have you got anything like non-controversial to (laughs) say? No, but back to the sushi. It it is really nice, Sharon. So if you're not a raw fish person, I would. There's also vegetarian sushi, which just has veggies. It is and, quite carby though because it's full yeah, of rice. Yeah. We there's a place in um the Columbus Coffee Cafe which is in the Countdown Complex in Newtown where I work uh is 
has what they call a, they have a deconstructed sushi. <laughs> that sounds disgusting. So it's, <laughs> it's just sushi without the wrap. And it's a salad. <laughs> it's a sushi salad. I get it a lot. It has seaweed and. Does it have the rice in it? No. I mean, well, it has like a little tiny bit. So you mm. can mix it together if you want to, but it's on the side. But it's really good. Uh, I, I used to like sushi when I was not low carb. Oh, uh, I, I I do like sushi. And every so often I will just decide I will have some. And I think we, we have a sushi place that delivers we on the do, Uber Eats. We do. But sushi is fascinating because I have a coworker who is um, her mother's Japanese and she's lived in Japan and she is pretty much a master chef. I don't know if she makes sushi, but she was telling me that. Can you be a mistress chef? I guess. Sounds quite um tantalizing sounds like a romance novel mm. the chef's mistress the mistress something. chef and the ceo mr chef and the ceo yeah. <laughs> although we've gone on to first responders now. it's the, the ceos the ceos are out ceos are out the of doctor fashion. is in the doctors are in because of covid yeah in. yeah and okay. navy seals yeah navy seals and serial killers i don't know why someone said well, why don't you just make a navy seal that's a serial killer I'm like whatever anyway um, back to sushi. It uh, takes seven again. years to really master the art of making good sushi. I mean, the you could have school. your conveyor belt sushi that you would get probably at some fast food joint in Tokyo. But to really, it's a seven-year process, and they take a lot of pride in their sushi-making skills. In your capacity as a, f- a world-famous rehab instructor, uh-huh. what do you think about this, you know, blind people learning to cook? and doing it safely and, you know, gadgets and advice. and I think you, I mean, you can really get hurt in the kitchen, whether you're blind or sighted. And I think that anyone should know good safety techniques, especially around using a hot oven or a stove and just fire prevention, cutting, you know, using knives to chop up veggies or meat or or whatever you're doing. So I think it is important to, to to have those safety measures. I took home ec when I was in high school and that was okay. But then when I went for rehab training after I graduated, I had an ADL instructor. And I think you just teach the basics. And I think that cooking is is one of those things. You either some people do it because they have to they have to. They have to feed yeah. themselves or their family. I mean my sister cooks, but she's not a cook. My mother would always talk about that. My mother liked cooking. She loved cooking. Your mother was a good cook. She was a good cook, yeah. But some people, that's their talent. I mean, I know blind people that are gourmet chefs, you know, that are in there throwing down in the kitchen. Mistress chefs. Yeah, and I'm not, you know, I like to experiment, but... If I had my own chef, if someone wanted to come cook for me, I'd happily let them. And that has nothing to do with blindness. That just has to do with things that are your interests. But I think that everyone should learn and not be discouraged. Oh, a blind person can't. Now, I don't know how or maybe or maybe it's just my fear factor. Um, and I would probably be the same way if I were sighted. But I have seen blind people get out fire up the old grill, you know, the old charcoal grill or the old gas grill. But isn't that that quite easy, though? Probably. I've just never done it because it kind of scares me. But, uh, and I use the, we don't have a George Foreman anymore. We have the OptiGrill. grill, yeah, which is like the the premium of the grill because yeah. it has a sensor on it, mm-hmm. and so it beeps when your steak, for example, gets to various stages of cookedness. Yeah, although we've been doing them in the air fryer now, and some people the talk about the, good, the air fryer being terrifying. Yeah. The air fryer is actually very easy to deal with because 
sometimes I have to pull the basket out to flip something over. It's not as frightening as doing it on the stove because it's hot, but it's not because it's an air conduction, I guess is mm. what it is. And it's it's not terrifying, um, like flipping and, things. And the, the food it produces is yeah, so good. It's good. Oh. I, I think that the tricky part of cooking when you're blind, with meat especially, is a is knowing when it's done, particularly chicken. Chicken is. You said you can tough. get the talking meat. You can, yeah. And... So there's there are a lot of gadgets out there. They ah, were yes. They were kind of laughing at me the other day because I was using the Keurig at work, and our Keurig doesn't automatically stop. So I was leaning over the cup with my finger on the rim, and they're like, mm. "What are you doing?" And I'm like, "It's my poor man's liquid level indicator." Yeah, and because they do have those, but. I, I think it's also important to be encouraged to cook and not be afraid. I've seen some instructors that start because a lot of blind people are afraid of the stove and the oven for, you know, understandable reasons. It gets hot. You get burnt. But they work a lot with a cold oven to get you used to taking things in and out of the oven, used to think Yeah, not jumping the... when you hear a loud noise. Yeah. What a twit, what a twit I was. Yeah, yeah, we've all burnt. I used to burn my forearms. I had this cause... big hole in my hand and I... Mosin at Large Podcast. Chris Cook is in touch from the UK. Hi, Jonathan. How are you doing? I wanted to pick up on several things from your last few riveting episodes of Mosin at Large. Firstly, you mentioned one amp. On last week's episode of the podcast, I too am still using an old 5.6x build of the software, which I find very simple and straightforward to use. I too never got on very well with Windows Media Player. The latest version of Winamp 5.80-3660 is available for anyone to download and try from the ninite.com website. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, N-I-N-I-T-E dot com. Cool site. The only reason that I'm sticking to my older build of Winamp is that when I installed the latest version, it kept asking me if the two USB thumb drives I had plugged into my PC for backups whilst working were actually a portable device, and did I want to sync them to my Winamp music library, etc., I kept on saying no to this prompt, but the damn thing kept cropping up over and over again. There may have been another way to get rid of it, but the surefire way I had at my disposal was to uninstall 5.8 and reinstall my old 5.6 version once again. If anyone does install 5.8, I recommend that you select Classic Winamp during the installation process which gives Winamp the look and feel of the older builds and makes it more accessible with JAWS or your other screen reader of choice. I'll respond to that one first, Chris. As far as I know, that's always been a feature of Winamp, and you get rid of it by disabling the Winamp portable device detection tool or whatever it's called. You can disable that feature. I found your interview with David Kingsbury from the Carroll Center a few weeks ago very informative and I bought his book, When One Web Browser Is Not Enough, and I'm currently reading it. I read on Twitter a few days ago that Microsoft have declared that IE11 will finish totally on the 17th of August, 2021. I have to say, though, after numerous hints and tips from you, and thanks to the marvellous training courses produced and delivered by Brian Harchin, latterly on Google Chrome and more recently on Edge, 
there's really nothing to fear. And although I still have IE-11 installed on my machine, as do you too, seemingly, it's no longer my default browser. And I'm using it less and less as time goes by. Yeah, it was just on my computer, actually, with this uh, build that we just did. And I haven't taken it off, but I never use IE anymore. I just never do. Finally, Jonathan, says Chris, I was really interested to hear your comparisons of the COVID rates and number of deaths of four US states with a similar population size to New Zealand and New Zealand itself. Here in the UK, we have a leader who's currently dozing at the wheel as opposed to the USA, whose leader is, as you rightly put it, asleep at the wheel. In our case, this has been particularly surprising as Boris Johnson very nearly died of the virus during April. New Zealand has always been cited by him as a shining example of what can be achieved employing swift and decisive action against this terrible virus. In fact, one of the intensive care nurses who helped him recover was from Invercargill, your most southerly and westerly city. Oh, yes, wasn't she called Jenny from Invercargill, I think? She had her moment of fame, didn't she? Donald Trump's senseless and ridiculous claims of allegations about the latest outbreak of COVID-19 in New Zealand typify his apparent minimalist grasp on reality even in his own country. I sadly lost a dear aunt who was only in her mid-60s to COVID back in May. And as you rightly pointed out, whether it's one death in a handful or one death in a million, it's still one death too many, especially for the close friends and family involved. I still miss her terribly. I hope that you, Bonnie, Heidi, and all the rest of your family stay safe and well. And Jonathan, please keep up the excellent work with the show. Well, firstly, my deepest condolences to you, Chris, for your loss. It's a terrible thing to go through. This virus is an evil, evil thing. And thank you for your email. An email that canvases a few topics from Rick James, who says, Jonathan, I have been so enjoying you and the community of contributors on the podcast. My memory is not like it used to be, and neither is my hearing. But I think I can still tell quality and sincerity when I hear it. And you got that, I have no doubt. Thank you, Rick. I am a 67 and two-thirds-year-old guy. <laughs> Reminds me of the way my kids used to describe their age when they were little. Living in Montana and trying to put my radio life back together after abandoning weekly trips to the college radio station where I have been hosting a show since around 1987 due to this virus. With 80 plus volunteers coming and going in and out of the studio, we just don't feel we should return. So I am trying in my fumbling sort of way to get started on producing some programming remotely. I guess I first heard about Mosin at Large when you appeared recently on FS Cast, one of your many old homes. So then I subscribed. Somehow or another, I learned of Mushroom FM, I think from visiting the Snowman's website when trying to find out something about this software called Reaper. When you played that audio from the old cassette newsletter from Raised Dot, I was reminded of a ton of things. That was cool. Thanks a lot. Not that I ever got good at using all of it, but I was fooling with those early computers and taking the next technology step forward towards access like most of us were. We've been up and down some hills, that's for sure. 
In the late 1980s, I got working at a summer orientation program here in Bozeman. I presume that's how you pronounce it. It was held on our campus here at Montana State. We'd bring in a few professionals in the blindness field, mostly the O&M types, and a typing teacher from the college, a local Braille person to teach that, and so on. The beginnings of the accessibility world was starting to get legs. So we got demo things sent to us, PCs of both types loaned from local stores, and started a class in it. We didn't make a big dent, but it was fun to remember those days hearing that newsletter. Thank you. I bet there will be a ton of great comments and memories. I look forward to listening. My show, when I do it live, is at the same time as your three-hour broadcast. So last week was the first time I heard the whole thing. I'm going to try and do that more often. I don't know where to start in asking advice on getting the remote radio show produced. I tend to spend so much time on music, processing, reviewing, and putting that together that I don't have patience enough to get going learning Reaper or whatever. I got the three-year-old tutorial from Mr. Hartgen, but it is using the older versions and older scripts too from Ray Access and I was advised by Mr. Snowbarger that maybe I should just go ahead and use his scripts and plow through using the current version of Reaper. But boy, it is so complex. I think, should I just learn to make simple voice track recordings and record my sets and then plug them in together? Software-wise, is there anything that is simpler to learn for just doing a show? I have purchased a Yeti Blue, but not yet purchased an interface. I heard you recommending one on your show. Thanks, Rick. It is all a bit daunting, isn't it? I can see how Reaper would be very good with this because essentially you could have your vocals on one track and just put your different music on the other track and you'd be able to hear yourself talking over the intro if that's your thing, line everything up, move it about a bit, add a bit of compression and you've got your recording. So yes, that would be really good. And you could also use Reaper's Media Explorer to streamline the process of actually loading your tracks into the show. So it would definitely be a way of producing it. The other way that you could produce it is to go with the Station Playlist Studio Suite. You'd buy Station Playlist Studio Professional, which has voice tracking capabilities, and you'd do your voice tracks, learn how to do that. So you'd load your songs in and just record coming out of one song and into another using the voice track system. And then you'd turn on the recorder and play the whole show back and it would record it to, say, an MP3 file. And there is a tutorial that Brian Hartgen and I put together on Station Playlist Studio. And you can find it by going to mosen.org, that's M-O-S-E-N.org slash broadcast it. And it's available for purchase. You would also need the Station Playlist software, of course. If you have got some way down the track with Reaper, though, you run the risk of just falling with a whole new set of things to learn. So depending on how far you feel you've gotten, you may like to stick with Reaper. There are people who will do one-on-one training in Reaper for you. And a good place to find that is to go to reaperaccessibility.com. That's reaperaccessibility, all joined together, .com. And if you subscribe to the RWP list, the Reapers Without Peepers list, there are people on there very willing for a small consideration to train you in any aspect of Reaper 
that you might like. And since you're a JAWS user, you'd be able to use JAWS Tandem, have somebody tandem in with you, train you, perhaps talk you through the process of putting that show together. Because in terms of Reaper, it's a really simple project to do. It shouldn't take too much training. I do agree with Jim that these days, it really is important to get on the Osira bandwagon. There's a lot of very good quality development being done with Osira, which for those who aren't familiar with it, is an accessible overlay for Reaper. People developing that have done a tremendous job and the people who make Reaper have done a great job at exposing the appropriate uh, hooks to make Reaper behave like it was almost written for blind people. Absolutely incredible. So with the combination of Reaper, Osara, and Jim Snowbarger's JAWS scripts, you are in very good shape. So all the very best to you, Rick. I hope it all pans out. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin at Large.